today's scripture reading is from Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 25. Romans 7, verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Z. I'm the pastor of One Covenant Church. For those of you who have joined us for the first time, would love uh, to get to know you. I know we have some non-Christian friends among us. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, the way that we preach in this church is that we take a book of the Bible, that's the Word of God, we break it up into its component parts, and then we explain it. It's called expository preaching. Now, this passage, uh, to be honest, is quite a difficult passage. It's a controversial passage. So some of you who may not have that much background may find it a bit difficult. Uh, bear with me. I'll try my best to explain it as clearly as I can. Uh, but please feel free to kind of approach me or Joel or Aaron uh, after the service. We'd love to be able to talk to you over a cup of coffee to explain things further. But join me with a word of prayer as we seek to understand your word this, uh, his word this morning. Father, we thank you that this is your word. And we thank you that it is clear. We thank you that it is difficult but clear. And we pray that it will be made powerful in our hearts by your Holy Spirit this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My friends, as I mentioned, we're working our way through the book of Romans, and we saw uh, that the main theme of the book of Romans is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That's found in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message like no other. It's what makes Christianity distinctive from every other belief system and every other system on earth. You see, every other system on earth says you need to earn your way to acceptance. It's only in Christianity that God says he accepts us, not on the basis of the things that we do, but on the basis of the free gift 
of His grace. We embrace that grace as a gift. Now, friends, this is what makes Christianity incredibly compelling. We are receiving the grace of God freely. We do not earn our acceptance before Him. We receive that acceptance as a free gift of God. But what makes it compelling also opens us up for critique. Now, some of you who are thinking about it would say, well, if grace is so free, if salvation is so free, then why care about doing right and wrong? Why don't I just sin as much as possible? If salvation is so free and grace is so free, why care about the law and the commandments of God? Why don't I just live life the way I want? And that is the reason why Paul takes two chapters in the book of Romans, Romans 6 and 7, to address three very common objections to the freeness of God's grace and the freeness of the gospel. We've seen over the last two weeks, the first objection he addresses is found in chapter 6, verse 1. I'll be to continue in sin that grace may abound. Should we continue sinning so that we get more grace? And Paul says, may it never be. No, it's an emphatic no. God forbid. Why? Well, he tells us because we have been united with Christ. And if we've been united with Christ, we have died to sin. We have died to sin in the death of Christ, and we've been resurrected with Christ, and now we live a new life for God. It's impossible for you to continue in sin that grace may abound because you're dead to sin. You're dead to the power of sin over you, and you are alive to God. The second objection that Joel so wonderfully explained to us last week is found in verse 15. Are we to sin, Romans 6.15, because we are not under law but under grace? We're not under the law as a system to be accepted before God. So since we're not under law, we're under grace, we're, we're, we're go going to God by grace, why don't we just sin as much as possible? And Paul says in chapter 6, verse 15, that this is impossible because, number one, you've become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching to which you were committed. When you became a Christian, something happened in your heart. While once you loved sin, now you love God. And you've become obedient to God, not just in your mind, not just in your actions, but in your heart. He also says in chapter 7, verse 6, that now you have been released from the law and you are now living and serving in the new way of the Spirit. You're released from the law as a system of salvation and you're now living in the way of the Spirit. Now in Romans chapter 8, Paul is going to say a lot more about what this life in the Spirit means. But before he gets there, he knows that he has to address one more objection. It's a very important objection and it's an objection that actually comes from very religious, ethical people. Now, Paul, you say we're released from the law. We're not under law. We're under grace. Does that mean that the commandments of God and the law of God in and of themselves are evil, are sinful, and irrelevant to the Christian? Look at Romans 7, verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means, Paul says. So here, from verse 7 to 25, Paul is telling us that the law is good. Even though it's not a system by which we're accepted before God, it's still good. And not only is it good, it still continues to be relevant to the Christian. How does he do so? He does so by showing us three things, that the law is working in us for our good. The law is exposing our sin, agonizing our souls, and revealing our Savior, exposing the sin, agonizing the soul, 
and, re and revealing the Savior. Let's look at the first point, exposing the sin. Come with me to Romans 7, verse 7. Paul says this, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Do you see what Paul is saying? Without the law, I don't know sin. So the law is exposing sin. It's making sin known. Now, how does it do it? Well, look at verse 7 again. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. Now, to covet is to desire something that is not yours. You shall not covet is the Tenth Commandment. Because the Tenth Commandment says you shall not covet, it has identified and labeled coveting as a sin. So the first way that the law helps us in exposing our sin so that we can do something about it is by defining sin, labeling sin, identifying sin. But not only does the law define sin, the law also provokes sin. Look at verse 8. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. You see, friends, sin begins in the heart, but it can lie dormant, it can lie unexpressed, it can seem like it's dead. For example, let's say deep in your heart, you're actually a very impatient person. And that impatience comes from the fact that you're selfish. Now that selfishness is within your heart and that impatience is already there. The sin is already there. But let's say you have no friends in your life. You never interact with other people. You've never joined a community group. There's no opportunity for the sin that's really there to be expressed. Now you join a community group and within the first two weeks, you get offended by something that someone says. You get provoked. You get impatient. Why is the guy taking so long? Your impatience gets expressed. And then you say, oh, the community group is evil. It makes me impatient. It makes me self-centered. No, 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 friends. That self-centeredness, that impatience was always there. The community group provokes it so that it can come out and you can see it for what it is. In the same way, that's what the law does. When it says you shall not covet, something inside you rises up and says, God, you have no right to tell me what to do. And you covet, you express the sin that's always there. So the law comes in to expose our sin by defining it and provoking it so that we can see it for what it is. And what happens? Verse 9, I was once alive. Well, that can also be translated, I thought I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now, it does not mean he was alive and then he died. It just means that he sees that he's spiritually dead. Now, verse 10 and 11, the very commandment that promised life, the good law of God, proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Do you see what Paul is saying here? It's not the law that killed you. It's not the community group that made you impatient. You were already impatient. You were already sinful. It's sin taking advantage of the law that killed you. And so he concludes in verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is good. The law is holy. It shows us God's perfect standards. It shows us God's perfect character. Now, he does in 13 something very interesting. He reiterates the point and he shows us something else that the Lord does in exposing sin. Look at verse 13. 
Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. So you're saying the law is good, Paul, but then that which is good killed me. He goes on to say in verse 13, it was sin, not the law, sin, producing death in me through what is good. Why? In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Friends, look at what it says here. Not only does the law define sin for you and provoke sin so you see it, the law shows you the sinfulness of sin. You might agree that anger is a sin and a very terrible sin, but until you see your anger hurting someone you love, you will not see the sinfulness of your sinful anger. And that's what's happening here with the law. The law comes in, defines sin for you so that there's no doubt at all that coveting is sin. The law provokes your sin, and the law shows you that sin is indeed sinful, and it does so so that you can do something about it. So that's the good purpose of the law. It exposes our sin. And Paul goes on to describe the effect of this exposure on our souls. Let's look at the second point. It agonizes the soul. Look at verse 14. It says, we know that the law is spiritual. Now, that word spiritual means that it's divine. It is of God. The law is of God. But he says in verse 14, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. He's saying two things about himself. He's distinguishing being spiritual and being fleshly. And in this context, being fleshly means he's ungodly. The law is of God, it's godly, but he is ungodly. Now, the term sold under sin has a sense of being sold as a slave under sin. So the law is holy, the law is good, but he is sinful and he is enslaved to sin. Now, in verse 14, Paul says, we know that the law is spiritual. He uses the plural pronoun, we. Now, who is he referring to? Who are the we that he's referring to? The people that know that the law is of God. Remember the original audience of the book of Romans. There were Jewish believers, there were Jews, and there were Greeks. He's referring to Jews. Jews believe that they received the law from God, and that law is divine. It's good. But then he goes on to say, I am of the flesh. Now, one of the most difficult things in interpreting this passage is to identify the I. Who is the I that Paul is talking about? I think here in verse 14, it becomes clear that he's talking about himself as a Jew. Paul was a Jewish person, but in solidarity with his Jewish compatriots. We know that the law is sinful, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Did you know, friends, that even today when Jewish people celebrate the Passover, they will say something like this, I was a slave in Egypt and God delivered me through the plagues and the Passover. Now, were they there? Of course not. But why can they say, I was a slave in Egypt? They can say that in solidarity with their own people. Just like on National Day, we can say, we became independent in 1965. Now, how many of you, okay, let's not go there. Many of us were not even alive in 1965. But why can we say we became independent in 1965? Because we're speaking in solidarity with our people. And that's what I think Paul is doing here. 
When he says I, yes, he's referring to himself, but not just himself. He's referring to himself in solidarity with the Jewish people. Now, how do the Jewish people experience the law? Let's look at verse 15. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. There's a conflict in the soul between desiring to do good and actually being able to do good. Verse 16, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. It's quite an irony here. But Paul is saying, the fact that you're struggling to do the right thing, even though you cannot do the right thing, proves that there's a thing called the right thing. Do you get what I'm saying? The fact that he's struggling to do the right thing, even though he cannot do the right thing, proves that there's a thing called the right thing. That struggle, that conflict inside, actually proves to you that there's something called good, and that good is the law. The inner conflict actually proves that the law is good. It's not evil. Verse 17 says, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So Paul begins to distinguish between who he is deep inside and the sin that dwells inside him. And then verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. In the fleshly, unspiritual part of who he is, nothing good dwells. And because there's sin dwelling inside him, there's that inner conflict. Now he will repeat this again in verses 18 to 20. For I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is I no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. There's a conflict, an agony of the soul between what he wants to do and what he can do because of the sin that dwells in him. And friends, how does all of this relate to the law? But look at verse 21. I find it to be a law. Now, I think this is better translated. I find it with respect to the law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. The law shows him what good is. But the more he wants to do the law, evil is close at hand. Verses 22 and 23, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. It shows me what's good and beautiful, and I delight in it in my inner being. But Paul says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. The law shows him what is good. The law even makes him desire to do what is good. But because of sin dwelling in him, taking him captive, he cannot obey the law. He cannot do what he desires to do. And this inner conflict agonizes his soul and causes him to cry out. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It brings him to the point that he knows that he cannot solve this problem on his own. He cannot do what he wants to do. There's a glimmer of hope in the beginning of verse 25. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the only one who can deliver me. But for now, verse 25, 
I myself serve the God, God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The inner conflict remains, although I look forward, he says, or I'm looking forward to Jesus Christ, the only one that can deliver me from this body of death. Another controversial issue with interpreting Romans 7, and this goes back centuries, friends, goes back to the early church, is to identify who exactly Paul is speaking about here in verses 14 to 25. Is this Paul before he became a Christian? Or is this Paul after he became a Christian? Is this Paul the regenerate person, the one who's been born again? Or is this Paul the unregenerate person? Is this describing the normal Christian life, verse 50, 14 to 25? Or is this here describing the non-Christian life? Is it the normal Christian life or the non-Christian life? Now, this debate has gone on for centuries, and I don't think we're going to resolve it uh, in a couple of minutes. Uh, but let me try to give you some pointers. So for those who think that this is describing the non-Christian life before Paul is converted, they point out a few things. They point out, firstly, verse 14. Verse 14 says that this person is sold under sin. Now that gives you the sense of being sold as a slave under sin. He's enslaved to sin. We just saw two weeks ago in Romans 6 verse 2 that Christians have died to sin. In Romans 6 verse 6, Christians are no longer enslaved to sin, Paul has said. And Romans 6 14 says, sin will have no dominion over you as a Christian. And yet here in verse 14, it says that this person is sold as a slave under sin. He's enslaved to sin. Now, another thing they point out is verse 23. It says that this person is captive to the law of sin. And yet in Romans 6 verse 6, it says that the Christian has died to that which held us captive. And in Romans 8 verse 2, it says that we have been set free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Thirdly, other than in verse 25 where he looks forward to Jesus Christ to deliver him, in this entire passage, there is no mention of Jesus or the Holy Spirit helping him in his fight with sin. No Jesus and no Holy Spirit. And yet in Romans 6 verse 6, it describes the Christians living in the new way of the Spirit. And in Romans 8 verse 1, it says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Romans 8 verse 2, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. One of the characteristics of a Christian is that he has, he or she has Jesus, and he or she has the Holy Spirit helping them in their struggle with sin. Now, let me just say up front, I find this incredibly, incredibly persuasive. Uh, it's become much clearer to me, even as I've studied this text, uh, for the purpose of preaching. I've wavered on this. But after I've looked at this, I really do think Paul is talking about the non-Christian life in these passages. But let's be clear and fair. What do those who say that this is the normal Christian life point out to say that this is actually what a Christian experiences? Well, firstly, they point out that in verses 7 to 13, Paul is speaking in the past tense. But in verses 14 to 25, he speaks in the present tense. So 7 to 13 was his past life, right? But now in 14 to 25, he's speaking about his experience right now. Now, friends, the problem is this. Remember, Paul is speaking rhetorically. He's speaking 
as a representative of the Jewish people. I was a slave in Egypt. Well, I am a slave in Egypt, and God delivers me through the Passover. So friends, because he's speaking rhetorically and embodying the character of a typical Jewish person, we should not make too much of the tenses. Now secondly, they point out that in verse 18, this person is described as desiring to do what is right. Not only that, verse 22, he delights in the law of God. Surely, surely this is a Christian because only Christians desire to do what is right and only Christians delight in the law of God. Well, you only need to read a few chapters in Romans 10, verse 2, where Paul points out that the Jews, the unconverted Jews, have a zeal for God. And if you read Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 in the Old Testament, you can see how possible it is for a Jewish person without Jesus Christ to continue to love the law and even desire to keep the law when they can't. So this isn't conclusive either. Thirdly, they point out that in verse 22, it speaks of the person having an inner being, the mind, verse 25, which is in conflict with the flesh. There's an inner conflict. And what they say is only Christians have this inner being and can experience this inner conflict. I mean, just look at 2 Corinthians 4.16 and Ephesians 3.16. It both refers to things that are happening in the Christian's inner being or inner self. Only Christians have this inner self and only Christians have this inner conflict. Is that right? Well, friends, if you look closer at 2 Corinthians 4.16 and Ephesians 3.16, it does say that there's stuff happening in the inner self of Christians, but it's not saying that the inner self only belongs to Christians. In fact, friends, in secular Greek, the term inner being refers to the immortal or Godward part of a human being. Everyone has this inner being. Everyone experiences this internal conflict. In Romans 1 verse 20, Paul says that even non-Christians perceive God's attributes so clearly that they are without excuse. It would be incredibly arrogant of us to think that only Christians have an inner being and experience inner conflict between doing what is good and doing what is evil. So even this is inconclusive, which is why I think tentatively and maybe not so tentatively that Paul here is referring not to the normal Christian life, but to the non-Christian life. Now, what do we do with this? Now, friends, there are some non-Christians visiting among us. Let me just say that we love having you here. We, we, we think it's, it's such a privilege that you will be here with us. What this means is the Bible is speaking of you. The Bible knows the inner conflict of your heart. You want to do good, but you can't. And Jesus is offering freedom, freedom from that inner conflict. Because if you're a non-Christian, it places you on the trajectory of verse 24, crying out like Paul does, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ. You can have that freedom even today when you embrace Christ by faith. And that shows us the third thing that the law does. It reveals the Savior. It defines sin. It agonizes the soul. It causes people to come to the point in verse 24 where they cry out, wretched man that I am, who will save me? 
In verse 25, it reveals to us that we all need Jesus Christ, irrespective of who we are. Now, some of you will say, Z, I'm a Christian. But when I look at verses 18 and 19, where Paul says, I have the desire to do what is right and not the ability to carry it out, and I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want, I keep on doing, that's me. That describes me. So how can you say that this is not the normal Christian life? That's describing me. Let me cover this under the last point, revealing the Savior. Now, this week, my daughter just collected her PSLE results. And um, I'm not going to tell you the results, but I'm going to tell you my observation. There are two types of students. Some students that think that they're stronger than they are, and some students that think that they're weaker than they are. So those who think that they're stronger than they are, they're disappointed when they actually see the results. But those who think that they're weaker than they truly are, they're pleasantly surprised. Wow, that's me. So this is the possibility here, friends. For those of you who say, as I look at verses 18 and 19, that's me. Some of you might be freer and stronger than you think you are. You see, friends, the scripture is clear. We will continue to struggle with sin until the day we die or until Jesus comes again. We will continue to struggle with sin. Romans 6.13 says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. So the struggle is real, friend. But Romans 6.11 says, You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The only way you cannot present your members to sin, but you present your members to righteousness is to know that you're dead to sin and you're alive to God and it's an objective reality. You are united to Christ. When he died, you died to sin. When he rose again, you rose to life. You're alive. You're stronger than you think you are. You need to look at your exam sheet. That's who you are. Not just based on what you perceive of yourself, but what you really are as God says it. So what do you need to do? You need to subjectively appropriate the objective reality that you have died to sin and now are alive to God. You need to subjectively appropriate the objective reality that Romans 7 verse 14 to 25 is not you. Something has happened in history to free you from sin and to put you into Christ so that you are alive to Him. So Christian, verse 14 to 25, is not you. You are stronger and freer than you think you are. And sometimes you need help. I need help to see that. Which is why you need to join the community group, friends. You need other friends to tell you, hey, you're stronger than you think you are. You need to become a church member so the church can tell you, you are stronger than you think you are. You have Jesus Christ. And so when you feel that inner conflict, that struggle with sin, you embrace the freedom by running to Jesus and calling out to the Holy Spirit to fill you once again. You're stronger, friends. You're stronger and freer than you think you are. On the other hand, if you're reading verse 14 to 25, and you come to the conclusion that this really is me, even though I've grown up in church, been baptized, 
know the Bible, serve in church, but this really is me. Well, friends, if the glove fits, then perhaps you're more lost than you think you are. Perhaps you've deceived yourself into thinking you're a Christian when you're not. Now, this is a very fearful thing, but it is also a very hopeful thing because now you see that it places you on the trajectory of verses 24 and 25. You too can call out, as Paul did, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, to Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you read this and you become convinced that this is you, I would urge you not to stay there any longer, not even for another second. Run to Jesus, call out to him, embrace him, and he will save you, and he will fill you with the Holy Spirit and give you a desire to obey him because you are no longer under law but under grace because you are dead to sin and alive to God. And that is why, friends, the law is God and continues to be relevant to the Christian. It exposes sin. It agonizes the soul. But it finally reveals to us the Savior. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a Welsh preacher. And I listened to this anecdote once in one of the sermons that he was preaching. I can't remember which one it is, but it's stuck in my mind. He tells the story, and I'm going to close with this story. Uh, of, you know, his, his usual practice in churches, you know, he doesn't do an altar call, but what he will do after he preaches is he says, if any of you have been disturbed or, you know, would like to talk further, please, I'm going to go to my vestry or to my office, and you can come and see me there, and we can talk about your soul. So he did that one Sunday. He preached the gospel. He went to his vestry, and he's waiting there. That's his office. He heard a knock on the door. The door opened, and there was a young man. He was probably in his 20s. He recognized this young man because this young man had been in his church his entire life. He had come as a, a little toddler. And this young man looked visibly shaken. So he sat down and Lloyd-Jones said, what can I do for you, young man? And this young man began to tell his story. He began this way. You know, Lloyd, you know Dr. Jones, uh, when I first came to your church, uh, I was a young toddler. My parents brought me and I did not like you. I did not like your sermons great feedback for a preacher to hear. And he says, uh, why, why? And I said, well, you know, you always said you would finish, but you never did. You went on and on and on, and I used to load that. But then he said, as I got older, I was one of the good Christian boys, and I, I was not in a Christian school. And all these non-Christian friends of mine started questioning my faith and throwing all kinds of objections at me. And I began to find you useful. Because as I listened to your sermons and as I took notes, I found that I had something to tell my friends about. I could defend the Christian faith, and I've done that for years. But then he said, today, something happened that's never happened before. Lord Jesus says, what happened? As you were talking about sin, 
about grace and about the Savior Jesus Christ. I came to see for the very first time that you're talking about me. I'm the sinner. I'm the one who needs a Savior. And I think I've embraced Christ for the first time. You see how the law of God is good, friends? Define sin. Factually, it agonizes your soul, but it ultimately points you to the Savior, Jesus Christ, so that you can say with Paul and all others, Romans 8, verse 1 to 2, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Jesus from the law of sin and death. And perhaps, friends, the Holy Spirit is doing that in some of your hearts today. Let's pray. Why don't we take a moment just to be quiet before God and to speak to Him about what's on your heart. Perhaps for some of you, the words of Romans 7, 24 and 25 may be helpful. Wretched man or woman or boy or girl that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin, this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Why don't you talk to your Savior right now? Father, we thank you that you are so good to us. And sometimes you come to comfort the afflicted. Other times you come to afflict the comforted. But in all that you do, you're driving us to the true and final comforter, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So we pray, Father, that every heart here in this room this day will find our only comfort in life and death, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to hand the time back to